Welcome back, Hemming Brains, to the Hemming Brainiac podcast, talking about chapter 117, poor old Dr. South. Felt bad for the man. Speaking of doctors, I did do my sleep study last night. Uh, that was fun. <laughs> Interesting. I had, uh, I think it was 24 um, wires, like, um, what are they called? Uh, I don't know, wires strapped to my body. There's a word for them. I can't think of it right now. Uh, and like the little thing stuck on the end of my finger and like a tube in my nose and all kinds of stuff, really. It was um, a lot of fun. And then a camera above the bed watching and a microphone above the bed listening all night while I went to sleep in um, in, a, in a hospital room. Although i got to say, like, as weird as it was, this was a high-tech room. This was a state-of-the-art sleep lab. And it was in a public hospital. Um, you know, I've stayed in smaller hotel rooms than this room I got to have to myself last night. I had a bed, obviously, a shower, a toilet, and, um, you know, state-of-the-art doctors monitoring my sleep. And as weird as it was, I did keep having that feeling, which I often get when I just think, man, like, I'm so lucky to just have free access to like modern medicine um just awesome i don't know same thing with like um once every couple of years um i get you'll get like free dental in australia if you're on like a you know like a low income kind of person it's like sort of part of your um concessions is you'll get sort of a voucher to get a little bit of dental work done. And it's just sort of enough to get a couple of fillings or, or whatever. Uh, and every time it comes around, uh, or every time I go to the dentist, as much as I hate the dentist, I also have this try to just feel gratitude while I'm laying there having my mouth drilled. Um, you know, needles stuck in my gums. Uh, and yeah, I feel like, I feel that I can override the pain and the discomfort with by just thinking about how lucky we are to have modern medicine anyway i don't know the results of my sleep study yet but uh it was interesting acoustic eel says you are spot on in your breaking down of apnea as meaning not breathing i was delighted to hear you talk through that you're wondering about the pronunciation yesterday gives me an excuse to talk linguistics one of my other side interests. Oh, awesome. Me too. I actually have a uh, a YouTube show, which I haven't really done for a couple of years now, but it's on the Launchpad YouTube channel. I've got a show called Define, um, where I just basically look up interesting words and talk about etymology. Um, I've, I always think, every couple of weeks, I think I should get back into that show and make another episode, but then I don't want to make just an episode randomly. So it's like, I'm only going to get back into it when I feel like I can actually make like sort of a season's worth, like eight episodes or something. Anyway, um, check it out if you want. Uh, I was spurred by your question slash idle wondering about why we say P in apnea and not pneumatic. Even though they are both from the same root, the Greek pneo meaning I breathe, or neo, I suppose it's pronounced uh, I wrote and rewrote four complicated explanations to answer it, but all you really need to know is this. We say P 
and N in apnea because saying PN together is easier when it's in the middle of a word. I like apnea. Uh, we don't say the PN pneumatic because the PN is harder to say because it's the beginning of the word. So if the word starts with PN, you don't pronounce the P. You just go, because that would be pneumatic, which is, which is hard to say. It would be pneumatic. Uh, but we keep writing the P because of a bunch of self-appointed English police in the 1600s said we had to. <laughs> uh, okay, well, you know, someone had to make the language we speak. I suppose we still are making the language. It changes. You know, it, language, our language, or all language, but English in particular, has morphed over the years, obviously, and changed, and... Um, but it, when it changes, it changes. There's sort of like a fashion uh, to how it changes for ev for when it changes. If that makes sense, like um, like the era of when the changes are happening. And now, right now, in the last ten years, I'm going to say, is the way that we are changing in English is we are just making it the ugliest language. The dumbest, goofiest language. Like, for some reason, we're obsessed with sort of like, portmanteaus have been used for a long time. A portmanteau is when you take two words that exist and kind of fuse them together. So, for example, toothbrush. You know, tooth and brush. Stick them together. The word is toothbrush. That's a portmanteau. Um... Or that's more like two words that are stuck together, not so much fused. I'm trying to think of one where it's like, um, like the uh, more more like they're merged together, not just two words that are kind of conjoined, but they're merged. But anyway, at the moment we've got ones that are like, I don't know, it's like they're they're supposed to be funny or clever, which is not cool. It's not good. <laughs> Like, I don't think we should be trying to be clever and funny in with with the creation of our language. Um, anyway. Um, so, like, what I mean by that is words like mansplain, you know, where it's like, oh, it's like explain, but when a man does it, mansplain. It's like you're creating our language. Like, you really want to add that into English? It's such a beautiful language, and you want to have your goofy little pun in there. Because the thing about when you make, like, a clever pun or a clever um, little wordplay is that everyone hates you. You're the only one who thinks it's funny. <laughs> Pretty much everyone else just goes, ah, ha, ha, yeah. <laughs> uh, and humors you. So, but now there's... Tons of those things, like mansplain. Um, and I hate them. I hate them. Not that I hate like the meaning of them or whatever. I just hate the way that we are creating words to try to be funny. Um, now, I did see your comment earlier, Acoustic Eels. I think I saw one of your previous attempts at the comment. Because <laughs> I remember you talking about um, helicopter. Uh, the P, like um, when the P T is together in helicopter, we say that. But like 
if you look at PT at the start of the word, like pterodactyl, we don't say the P at the start. And that made me think of an interesting little factoid that I like about how helicopter is a portmanteau of two words um, stuck together. So uh, much like toothbrush or uh, petrichor, I don't know why that one popped into my head, microphone, I know why that one popped into my head. Anyway, helicopter is, but if you ask someone to divide it back into its two parts, they will often get it wrong because the two words are helico and pter. And pter being um, like a wing, like um, that's with the pterodactyl, the P-T-E-R at the start of pterodactyl is to denote that it has wings. And helico means spinning around or like in a spiral mover movement and pter means wing so it's a spinning around wing helico pter uh i always thought that was a kind of an interesting little linguistics factoid okay i am norwegian said this good luck on your sleep study i was tired for like a decade straight i had so many years where i wanted to play video games but i was too tired for video games wow uh i mean yeah i i fit in some video games uh Everything's such a burden when you're tired. I still get like that sometimes. It's awful, but I'm much better overall now. I'm saying that as I'm zombified from three hours of sleep last night, though. Haha. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's a weird thing having... Well, I think I've got sleep apnea. I don't have the diagnosis yet, but it would make a lot of sense because I don't have insomnia. When you say, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm always tired, I'm having bad sleep, people assume that you're lying restlessly or you're having difficulty sleeping i have no difficulty getting to sleep let me tell you that um so it's not an insomnia thing and i go to bed you know i'll go to bed at midnight and i'll get up at 8 a.m so i'll get my eight hours but sleep apnea makes sense because yeah you get your eight hours but it's eight bad hours of sleep the sleep itself is poor quality uh and hence why you're still tired that would make sense. Um, Acoustic Eel says this. I'm happy. Oh, look at this. We're talking about the actual um, episode. The actual chapter. I can't even remember what the, my... Oh, yeah. My discussion prompt was this. Poor old Dr. South. Acoustic Eel says this. I'm happy that Philip knows what he wants and is able to confidently turn down such a plum offer from Dr. South. My worry is now that he has asserted his freedom that he won't follow through on his plan to go see the world and whatever else he wants. I think if Philip had stayed in the small fishing town with the old doctor, it would make for a great British dry comedy. With the generational divide and rural life themes, a fish-out-of-water arc as the city-dwelling doctor comes to the small town, witty dialogue between Philip and Dr. South, plenty of dark jokes about death, I would watch it. <laughs> Um, what's that one with Daniel Radcliffe and um, Madman, the guy from Mad Men? I don't, I don't know why I'm thinking of that. Uh, anyway, to to do what was I going to say? I was going to say something just then. Oh yeah, it would have been a shame though if he had taken that position. I was really glad when he reminded himself that he wants adventure and he wants to see the world. Because that's what he truly wants, and I think, I think he should. I think he should get it. I think he should get it. Does he deserve it? 
does he deserve it? That's a good question. Does he deserve the ending that he wants? I think that might be my discussion prompt today, or one of them. I haven't even read the chapter yet, but it's food for thought. Um, Swim said the mumfish, she said this, after listening to your podcast, I found your remarks about the author's bottle episodes, if you will, and your dislike of them interesting. I believe what we are seeing derives from the author's training as a doctor. I trained as a civil engineer and I enjoyed them precisely because of his clinical and analytical eye for detail and his spare prose. I also read a lot of non-fiction, including history, and these chapters dovetail quite nicely for me because it gives me insight of how life was back in the day. Yeah, I suppose that's good, isn't it? They paint a picture of a time that we didn't get to experience, so yeah, I can get that. I just think I just feel like they stick out a little bit, and I feel like they've been written from inside the scene, not reflecting on it. Uh, but that's... I don't know. That's just my criticism, I suppose. Doesn't really detract much from the book to me, though, to be honest. I'm still really enjoying this book. Uh, Swim also said this. London families travelling to pick up hops in Kent, where the Isle of Tanit is located, during the summer was quite the thing. The article below has really marvellous photographs of the experience. All right, I've got to see these photos. Head to the subreddit if you want to see it. It's, you know, it's in this discussion for chapter 117. Um... Oh, okay, it's giving me pop-up. Oh, here we go. Okay, there's a guy that's on some stilts. Why are they on stilts? I guess hops has to be harvested up high. Oh, wow, these are good photos. That should be horse. They're loading up. It looks almost like it's farming, but <laughs> they're kind of leisurely about it. Farming for holidays. Farming, farming for a bit of time off. That's a great photo of that cart stacked up to the rafters. Ah, old England. Such a quaint place. I'm just, I'm, this is just me looking at pictures. I don't really understand. I mean, I don't really, <laughs> I do understand. I don't um, imagine that uh, this will be entertaining for you, but they are really good pictures. Oh, wow, they're really... Anyway, okay, I'm just going to close that because I'm just going to look at all those pictures. Uh, I would encourage you to go and have a look. Very old timesies, um, early England uh, families on the hops farms. All right, let's keep reading. Ooh, before I fall asleep, on ya. Okay, what's this chapter? F- One hundred and eighteen. We're nearly there. I think we got. What have we got? Four chapters left. Damn. Five chapters left. All right, goes like this. It was late in the evening when Philip arrived at Fern. It was Mrs. Athelney's native village, and she had been accustomed for her childhood to pick in the hop field to which her husband and her children she still went every year. Like many Kentish folk, her family had gone out regularly, glad to earn a little money, but especially regarding the annual outing, looked forward to for months as the best of holidays. The work was not hard, it was done in common in the open air, and for the children it was a long, delightful picnic. Here the young men met the maidens in the long evenings. When work was over, they wandered about the lanes making love, and the hopping season was generally followed by weddings. They went out in carts with bedding, pots and pans, chairs and tables. The fern, while the hopping lasted, was deserted. They were very exclusive, 
and would have resented the intrusion of foreigners, as they called the people who came from London. They looked down upon them and feared them too. They were a rough lot, and the respectable country folk did not want to mix with them. In the old days the hoppers slept in barns, but ten years ago a row of huts had been erected at the side of a meadow, and the Athelnys, like many others, had the same hut every year. Athelny met Philip in the station in a cart he had borrowed from the public house at which he had got a room for Philip. It was a quarter of a mile from the hop field. They left his bag there and walked over to the meadow in which were the huts. They were nothing more than a long, low shed divided into little rooms about twelve feet square. In front of each was a fire of sticks round which a family was, around which a family was grouped, eagerly watching the cooking of supper. The sea air and the sun had browned already the faces of Athelny's children. Mrs. Athelny seemed a different woman in her sunbonnet. You felt that the long years in the city had made no real difference to her. She was the countrywoman, born and bred, and you could see how much at home she found herself in the country. She was frying bacon at the same time, keeping an eye on the younger children. But she had a hearty handshake and a jolly smile for Philip. Athelny was enthusiastic over the delights of a rural existence. We're starved for sun and light in the cities we live in. It isn't life, it's a long imprisonment. Let us sell all we have, Betty, and take a farm in the country. I can see you in the country, she answered with a good-humoured scorn. Why, the first rainy day we had in the winter, you'd be crying for London. She turned to Philip. Athelny is always like this when we come down here. Country, I like that. Why, he don't know a Swede from a Mangelwurzel. Daddy was lazy today, remarked Jane, with the frankness which characterised her. He didn't fill one bin. I'm getting into practice, child, and tomorrow I shall fill more bins than all of you put together. Come and eat your supper, children, said Mrs. Athelny. Where's Sally? Here I am, mother. She stepped out of their little hut, and the flames of the wood fire leaped and cast sharp colour upon her face. Of late, Philip had only seen her in the trim frocks she had taken to since she was at the dressmaker's, and there was something very charming in the print dress she wore now, loose and easy to work in. Excuse me. <clears throat> the sleeves were tucked up and showed her strong round arms. She too had a sunbonnet. You look like a milkmaid in a fairy story, said Philip, as he shook hands with her. She's the belle of the Hopfields, said Athelny. My word, if the squire's son sees you, he'll make you an offer of marriage before you can say Jack Robinson. The squire hasn't got a son, father, said Sally. She looked about for a place to sit down in, and Philip made room for her beside him. She looked wonderful in the night, lit by wood fires. She was like some rural goddess, and you thought of those fresh, strong girls whom old Hendrick Herrick had praised in exquisite numbers. The supper was simple bread and butter, crisp bacon, tea for the children, and beer for Mr. and Mrs. Athelny and Philip. Athelny, eating hungrily, praised loudly all he ate. He flung words of scorn at Lucullus and piled invectives upon Brulat Savarin. There's one thing one can say for you, Athelny, said his wife. You do enjoy your food, and no mistake. Cooked by your hand, my Betty. He said, stretching out an eloquent forefinger. Philip felt himself very comfortable. He looked happily at the line of fires, with people grouped about them, and the colour of the flames against the night. 
At the end of the meadow was a line of great elms, and about above the starry sky. The children talked and laughed, and Athelny, a child among them, made them roar by his tricks and fancies. They think a rare lot of Athelny down here, said his wife. Why, Mrs. Bridges told me, said to me, I don't know what we should do without Mr. Athelny now, she said. He's always up to something. He's more like a schoolboy than the father of a family. Sally sat in silence, but she attended to Philip's wants in a master, in a thoughtful fashion that charmed him. It was pleasant to have her beside him, and now and then he glanced at her stubborn. Sorry. And now get. Oh my God! And now and then he glanced at her sunburned, healthy face. Once he caught her eyes, and she smiled quietly. When supper was over, Jane and a small brother were sent down to a brook that ran at the bottom of the meadow to fetch a pail of water for washing up. You children, show your Uncle Philip where to sleep, and then you must be thinking of going to bed. Small hands seized Philip, and he was dragged towards the hut. He went in and struck a match. There was no furniture in it, and besides a tin box in which clothes were kept, there was nothing but the beds. There were three of them, one against each wall. Athelny followed Philip in and showed them proudly. That's the stuff to sleep on, he cried. None of your spring mattresses and swans down. I never sleep so soundly anywhere as here. You will sleep between sheets. My dear fellow, I pity you from the bottom of my soul. The beds consisted of a thick layer of hop vine, on the top of which was a coating of straw, and this was covered with a blanket. After a day in the open air... With the aromatic scent of the hops all around them, the happy pickers slept like tops. By nine o'clock all was quiet in the meadow, and everyone in bed but one or two men who still lingered in the public house and would not come back till it was closed at ten. Athelney walked there with Philip, but before he went, Mrs. Athelney said to him, We breakfast about a quarter to six, but I dare say you won't, won't want to get up as early as that. You see, we have to set out to work at six. Of course he must get up early, cried Athelny, and he must work like the rest of us. He's got to earn his board. No work, no dinner, my lad. The children go down to bathe before breakfast, and they can give you a call on their way back. They pass the jolly sailor. If they'll walk, if they'll wake me, I'll come and bathe with them, said Philip. Jane and Harold and Edward shouted with delight at the prospect, and next morning Philip was awakened out of a sound sleep by their bursting into his room. The boys jumped on his bed, and he had to chase them out with his slippers. He put on a coat and a pair of trousers and went down. The day had only just broken, and there was a nip in the air, but the sky was cloudless, and the sun was shining, yellow. Sally, holding Connie's hand, was standing in the middle of the road with a towel and a bathing dress over her arm. She saw now that her sunbonnet was of was of the colour of lavender, and against it her face, red and brown, was like an apple. She greeted him with her slow, sweet smile, and he noticed, suddenly, that her teeth were small and regular and very white. He wondered why they had never caught his attention before. "'I was for letting you sleep on,' she said. "'But they would go up and wake you. I said you didn't really want to come.' "'Oh, yes, I did.' They walked down the road and then cut across the marshes. That way it was under a mile to the sea. The water looked cold and grey and Philip shivered at the sight of it, but the others tore off their clothes and ran in, shouting, 
Sally did everything a little slowly, and she did not come into the water till all the rest were splashing around Philip. Swimming was his only accomplishment. He felt at home in the water, and soon he had them all imitating him as he played at being a porpoise, and a drowning man and a fat lady afraid of wetting her hair. The bathe was uproarious, and it was necessary for Sally to be very severe to induce them all to come out. You're as bad as any of them, she said to Philip, in her grave, maternal way, which was at once comic and touching. They are not anything like so naughty when you're not here. They walked back, Sally and her bright hair streaming over one shoulder and her sunbonnet in her hand, but when they got to the huts, Mrs. Athelny had already started for the hop garden. Athelny, in a pair of old trousers, anyone had e- the oldest trousers anyone had ever worn, his jacket buttoned up to show he had no shirt on, and in a wide-brimmed soft hat, was frying kippers over a fire of sticks. He was delighted with himself. He looked every inch at Brigand. As soon as he saw the party, he began to shout the witch's chorus from Macbeth over the odorous, odorous kippers. You mustn't dawdle over your breakfast or mother will be angry, he said when they came up. And in a few minutes, Harold and Jane, with pieces of bread and butter in their hands, they sauntered through the meadow into the hop field. They were the last to leave. A hop garden was one of the sites connected with Philip's boyhood and the oast houses, to him the most typical feature of the Kentish scene. It was with no sense of strangeness, strangeness, but as though he were at home, that Philip followed Sally through the long lines of the hops. The sun was bright now and cast a sharp shadow. Philip feasted his eyes on the richness of the green leaves. The hops were yellowing, and to him they had the beauty and the passion which poets in Sicily have found in the purple grape. As they walked along, Philip felt himself overwhelmed by a rich luxuriance. A sweet scent arose from the fat Kentish soil, and the fitful September breeze was heavy with the goodly perfume of the hops. Athelstan felt the exhilaration instinctively, for he lifted up his voice and sang. It was the cracked voice of the boy of fifteen, and Sally turned around. You be quiet, Athelstan, or we shall have a thunderstorm. In a moment they heard the hum of voices, and in a moment more came upon the pickers. They were all hard at work, talking and laughing as they picked. They sat on chairs, on stools, on boxes with their baskets by their sides, and some stood by the bin, throwing the hops they picked straight into it. There were a lot of children about and a good many babies, some in makeshift cradles, some tucked up in a rug on the soft brown dry earth. The children picked a little and played a great deal. The woman worked busily. They had been pickers from childhood, and they could pick twice as fast as foreigners from London. They boasted about the number of bushels they had picked in a day, but they complained you could not make money now, as in former times. Then they paid you a shilling for five bushels, but now the rate was eight, and even nine bushels to the shilling. In the old days, a good picker could earn enough in the season to keep her for the rest of the year, but now there was nothing in it. You got a holiday for nothing, and that was about all. Mrs. Hill had bought herself a piano out of what she made picking, She so she said, but she was very near, one wouldn't like to be near like that, and most people thought it was only what she said. If the truth was known, perhaps it would be found that she had put a bit of money from the savings bank towards it. 
The hoppers were divided into bin companies of ten pickers, not counting children, and Athelney loudly boasted of the day when he would have a company consisting entirely of his own family. Each company had a bin man, whose duty it was to supply it with strings of hops at their bins. The bin was a large sack on a wooden frame, about seven feet high, and long rows of them were placed between the rows of hops. And it was to this position that Athelney aspired when his family was old enough to form a company. Meanwhile, he walked rather by encouraging others than by exertion of his own. He sauntered up to Mrs. Athelney, who had been busy for half an hour and had already emptied a basket into the bin, and with his cigarette between his lips began to pick. He asserted that he was going to pick more than anyone that day, but Mother, of course, no one could pick so much as Mother. That reminded him of the trials which Aphrodite put upon the curious Psyche, and he began to tell his children the story of her love for the unseen bridegroom. He told it very well. It seemed to Philip, listening with a smile on his lips, that the old tale fitted in with the scene. The sky was very blue now, and he thought it could not be more lovely even in Greece. The children with their fair hair and rosy cheeks, strong, healthy, and vivacious, the delicate form of the hops, the challenging emerald of the leaves, like a blare of trumpets, the magic of the green alley, narrowing to a point as you looked down the row with the pickers in their sunbonnets perhaps there was more of the greek spirit there than you could find in the books of professors or in the museums he was thankful for the beauty of england he thought of the winding white roads and the hedgerows the green meadows with their elm trees the delicate line of the hills and the copses that crowned them the flatness of the marshes and the melancholy of the north sea he was very glad that he felt its loveliness but presently athelney grew restless and announced that he would go and ask how Robert Kemp's mother was. He knew everyone in the garden, and called them all by their Christian names. He knew their family histories, and all that had happened to them from birth. With harmless vanity, he played the fine gentleman among them, and there was a touch of condescension in his familiarity. Philip would not go with him. "'I am going to earn my dinner,' he said. "'Quite right, my boy,' answered Athelney with a wave of the hand as he strolled away. No work, no dinner. All right, there we go. There's a chapter for you. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.